Hello, this is Jamie Club of Club Chimera Martial Arts. You are listening to T.W. Smith at Kung Fu Podcasts. Once you have finished truly appreciating and enjoying the dulcet tones of this masterful intellectual blend of martial arts education that should smoothly run down into your soul like the American South's finest distilled grains, I would like to recommend that you pop over the Atlantic and clap your kingly ears around an episode of Jamie Club's Club Chimera Martial Arts podcast. In the meantime, please explore the culture, adventure, and the impact of martial arts that is T.W. Smith's Kung Fu Podcast. The time for reforms has passed. It's clear to us now that more training, more accountability measures for police officers are not going to cut it. We need to move away from armed responses to social problems. That's a quote by the city council member in the recent July 8, 2020 interview for the Seattle Times. They have cut their police department's budgets by 50% are going to knock it down again 50% in 2021. This episode is to bring to the forefront what we can expect as martial artists. Welcome to Kung Fu Podcast, where we explore the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. If this is your first time to the program, welcome. You're in the audience of some of the finest and sharpest martial artists in the world. People that put in a great deal of sweat and a great deal of care into honing the craft. If you can't tell already, I'm outside today. I've got a new device that I'm using for most of my recordings that will help expedite my ability to get them recorded. And it's the Tascam DR10L, which is a very good field recorder that many reporters use. And uh, I'll be working with this and sometimes on a walk. But I'm out here in a park right now before practice in Raleigh. You know, this episode is not dedicated to analyzing the problem, not the politics, not what may happen. It's a matter of what has happened and what is already on the cusp of happening. What's going to happen to the areas when the police forces are defunded? What should a martial artist be prepared to act upon? In a recent article, quote, Minneapolis looks toward a police-free future, end quote. It is very direct that they are not looking to reshape, retrain, or reinvent the police force. These council people want it gone, and their mindset has carried over to other cities. They are looking at what they call a new, but it's really not so new, system for self-policing and policing ourselves. They are looking specifically at, quote, what unarmed crisis response teams must be and what they might look like, end quote. So let's take a few moments and talk about responding because that's what it's all about, like a 911 call, right? When you call 911, you're not looking for uh, the housing department, are you? No, it's usually fire, ambulance, or police. Well, in June 30th, 2020, the average response time is 10 minutes across the United States. When the call comes in, it is ranked either high, medium, or low priority. 
life-threatening situations of course get high so what effects are we going to have on our response times you know somebody's outside my house so what type of things are going to affect our response times certainly prioritizing it is also the number of incoming calls at the time of your call take the riots recently in different cities you know they were just swamped with phone calls there's also going to be the number of officers that are available to respond to the calls that are coming in uh, there's gonna be the number of offers needed to respond to your specific situation in this coming year and some of it's already happened after these police forces have been defunded I'm gonna be interested on how many quote slow response time complaints are going to exist I think it's also ironic that in many cases a group that wanted to be part of a march to defund the police and wanted to exercise their right to speech got the opportunity to do that but they also wanted police protection to do that <sighs> uh, personally stand up put your money where your mouth is because when you pray for the rain you got to deal with the mud take a moment and look at the reality of its potential well it's not really potential anymore right it is real Minneapolis is ready for the major overhaul June 30th 2020 New York Times reported that they responded to defunding the police request by placing a hiring freeze and moved one billion, that's with a B, billion, away from the police force of New York City. Baltimore has cut their budgets to the police force 22.5 million. Portland's cut at 15 million. Seattle, which we mentioned in the opening of this program, Hartford, Connecticut, San Francisco, San Diego, Los Angeles, Oakland, Milwaukee, Denver, and Chicago, New York City, we just spoke about, and of course DC, all have made big motions. As one of my students and I were talking about the other day, notice there are no cities in Texas talking about this kind of stuff. Now, I don't know what kind of politics that means, but I do know this. When I lived in Texas, I can tell you that most of those people are ready to protect themselves and their communities. I would not go around there trying to tear up somebody's stuff. One point of contention in many cities that I discovered is that the police force is unionized. Now, I've mentioned several times in this program that, you know, I come from a law enforcement family. So this whole podcast has, you know, kind of torn me apart in different ways because some of this I didn't know about. My grandfather was the police officer walked to beat in a small town, then later became the sheriff of that small town. And then the law enforcement, uh, pretty much like CEO of that town. My father was a highway patrolman in a, you know, North Carolina town. So, you know, there really wasn't union and you didn't have to worry about a bad police officer because the North Carolina Highway Patrol would yank your rear end right off the force in a heartbeat. Uh, but I didn't realize that these unions were set up in such a way that oftentimes city officials could not fire the occasional bad cop that would slip into the ranks. <gasps> so they were recognized. The, the people wanted to take action, but because of the way it was set up, they couldn't. You know, that's not good at all. No union should protect the asses in their flock. That's like uh, somebody moving a pedophile from one church to another church all around the country instead of just, you know, uh, getting his ass put in jail or just throw him out there to be fed to the crocodiles. Also, when it comes down to it, we don't have to go very far back in history to find a precedence for self-policing. But we can, and we are going to dip back in time some, and we're going to travel around the world. During Kung Fu Podcast number 198, we discussed self-policing because during that series 
where we were talking about turning warriors into sportsmen, we particularly looked into the 11th century at the Balgia system, where we, you and I, could have been trained to keep our crops, villages, our children safe from drifters, warlords, pirates, bandits, and to maintain the law. We would be responsible for our community, our ancestors' resting places, and our children's school and future home. We can jump up 500 years and move into Europe into the 1600s and colonial America. Professor Gary Porter teaches in the area of justice and wrote the work, The History of Policing in the U.S. He tells about how Boston, New York formed community-based watch systems in 1636. Philadelphia followed shortly behind before the 1700 mark. These watch systems were augmented by police officers known as constables. In many of these systems, the constables were responsible for overseeing the activity of the community watch systems. This was the system through most cities, all the way through the revolution, with the first municipal police department being around 1830. So what was the trigger for this 1830 development of professional organizations of policing? Well, the cities were growing and there was more rowdiness from the growth. Of course, you know, you got hooligans fighting at the bars. But there was only a bump in occasional protesting. But according to the academic professors, that was not the trigger to develop a municipal police force. There wasn't a massive uptick in problems, and there was no evidence of a crime wave when these organizations were developed. Professor Porter poses the question, so, if the modern American police force was not a direct response to crime, then what was it a response to? And the answer, based on his research, was, quote, More than crime, modern police forces in the United States emerged as a response to disorder, air quote, disorder. What constitutes social and public order depends largely on who is defining the terms. And in the cities of the 19th century, they were defined by the merchants, the commercial and for-profit people, and their interests is what defined what was disorder. Because through the taxes and political influence, they supported the development of bureaucratic policing institutions. So let me repeat that. Basically, much more than crime, modern police forces in the United States emerged as a response to disorder that was defined by merchants, people who were looking to strike profits and political influence. And boy, here we are, you know, a couple of hundred years later, and many Americans continue to feel this political influence of policing. By the 1880s, all major U.S. cities had a police force that followed the exact same template. These profiting economic interests that were defining disorder and controlling police, according to Professor Porter, quote, had a greater interest in social control than crime control. The emerging commercial elites needed a mechanism to ensure a stable and orderly workforce, a stable and orderly environment for the conduct of business, and the maintenance of what they referred to as the collective good, end quote. These profit-seeking merchants also wanted to divest themselves of the cost of protecting their own enterprise. They wanted to transfer those costs from the private sector to the state. So the organized police forces were used to control the economical interests of special groups along with political influence. 
Now let's talk a bit about self-policing or policing self. If I keep moving forward on a chronological research bridge, this will bring me to the 19th century in Britain, where Professor J. Carter Wood, who has his PhD in modern British history, tells in his article written in 2003, titled Self-Policing and the Policing of Self, Violence, Protection, and the Civilizing Bargain in Britain. So let's take a look at what those terms mean. I had to uh, follow this along in pretty good detail and I had to reread it, so let's make sure I do a pretty good job explaining it. Because I didn't quite understand what civilizing bargain meant. But Professor Wood writes, In Britain, recent years have seen increasing criticism of police ineffectiveness. You will also see higher profile incidents of vigilantism and increasing interest in alternatives to traditional policing. Now remember, this was like 20 years ago. So in light of those trends, Professor Wood walks us back to the 19th century in a community of self-policing in which ordered social relations decide pretty much what is acceptable violence. Now in my mind, I'm thinking of the Balgia system, the watches, where they were self-policing and watching over crime that may be happening, uh, like I said, the bandits and other folks that might be coming in to cause trouble. However, along with self-policing our communities, Professor Wood also says it was also important that this expansion increase to an expectation of more elaborate self-control, a policing of self. So thirdly, there was also this part that really stuck out to me. It suggests ways that the civilizing process can, in certain contexts, generate tensions if this civilizing bargain which is exchanging self-policing for self-protection. And when that happens and the state protection doesn't meet the community's expectation, then all of a sudden we have a gap. I don't think it's much of a reach for us to say that the state in several cities feel that the expectations that they have for their police force is not being met. Professor Wood states that when the civilizing bargain which is exchanging that self-policing for state protection begins to fall short, there are going to be several contributing factors. Remember now, he's referring to over 40 years ago, but he writes, quote, There's been a renewed interest in policing outside the uniformed police. The focus on vigilantes, the growth of the private security industry, the lack of confidence in the criminal justice system to mete out justice, public demands for longer harsher prison sentences, and fear of no-go areas and young male renegades controlling neighborhoods even police fear to tread into. This leads to questioning the ability of uniformed police to control the policing enterprise." Quote. The New York Times had an article, Mexican Violence Prompts Self-Policing by Civilians, written by Carla Zabludowski in January 26, 2013. In this article, she writes about how the state governor, Angel Rivero, observed the gap between maintaining a state authority while acknowledging the gaps in policing. He also authorized support by providing some of the more established communities police with vehicles, uniforms, and radios. Bruno Valerio organized the community policing in Guerrero. He says, quote, the most important weapon will be the organization of the people, end quote. He continued to receive regular calls from other community leaders who want to join this self-policing movement. 
Now, they're not planning to go totally without law enforcement, he writes. They handle the bigger picture items. For example, checkpoints and drug dealing. In the same article, Sergio Sarmento Silva is an expert on indigenous movements. He states, quote, The communities have permitted to reevaluate their institutions, recreate them, and confront something that the Mexican state has not been able to resolve, end quote. So much of the self-policing occurs in these indigenous communities, places which are riddled with poverty and marginalization. Zabludowski writes, quote, Many of these communities have long harbored suspicion of the state. Indeed, some consider themselves autonomous from Mexico, which at times has granted them de facto self-rule, end quote. So let's consider this self-policing state by state. A work titled Armed Neighborhood Groups Form in the Absence of Police Protection, written June 3, 2020, Minneapolis. Curfew begins and a few men climb through a window and onto the roof to set up their semi-automatic weapons. The owner of the building, small business owner Barris, never thought she would have to do this until she realized that the apartments in the building were occupied. She says, quote, Material things we can replace, and that's true. But there are families up here. These are not empty buildings, end quote. The city, in this case, pretty much created a security vacuum. And she said that the police disappeared from their neighborhood. That's when she and others started forming patrols to include people who were licensed to carry weapons. On July 1st, 2020, just a few weeks ago, Minneapolis looks forward to a police-free future. One of the things that came out of the research for this is that roughly 92% of their police force lives in a non-Minneapolis zip code, which many say makes them less accountable to the community that they police. Now, that number makes Minneapolis an outlier. In 2010, other studies show that of the 75 American cities with the largest police forces, that an average of 60% of those officers do not live within the city that they police. Now, again, that's why I said earlier, this was news to me because when I grew up through the law enforcement system, uh, my grandfather lived right in the heart of that town, which was sometimes a problem. He never got a chance to relax. And I remember when I was young, I asked him, and said, hey, Grandpa, why don't you ever just kind of uh, just sit back and relax, have a beer while you're at home? He said, Tim, I live in this town and I've put away a lot of bad people. And it made me think about this, for example, because the only time I ever saw him relax is when we would drive 150 miles to the beach. And the only people that knew he was there were the other police officers. My dad, of course, uh, being in the Highway Patrol, we were required to move to the area that he was going to be policing in. So it brings us down to us as martial artists and how should we prepare for this inevitable defunding of the police and how it's going to change some policing and policing ourselves in the near future. Professor Patrick Sharkey has a PhD in sociology and he teaches at Princeton. So he's a pretty smart guy, right? He wrote an excellent article in June 2020 in the Washington Post. He writes, quote, The best evidence we have makes clear that police are effective in reducing violence and without designating some group to combat this problem, efforts to weaken them through budget cuts, defunding the police, are likely going to have unanticipated consequences and destabilize communities, end quote. 
Community leaders and residents have shown to be effective overseeing neighborhoods and making streets safer. So the question arises, what happens if we put those people in charge of containing violence as well? Over the past 10 years, an expanding body of research has shown just how damaging violence is to community life. Children's academic trajectories and healthy child development plummet. We have rigorous causal evidence that every shooting in a neighborhood affects children's sleep and their ability to focus and to learn. Decades of criminological theory and growing evidence demonstrate that residents and local organizations can, can indeed police their own neighborhoods and control violence in a way that builds stronger communities. You have to bring in local organizations, leaders and residents together and around a single entity, sometimes called a community quarterback, to begin planning a new model of public safety and well-being. Find an outside source of funding, uh, for example, a philanthropist or a foundation, to make sure the coalition has the same resources the police department would receive to patrol that precinct. Give it at least five years to work it out and train the people in this community. He has seen it work, where the community worked shifts, diffused violence, and provided refuge to many women in need. One of the things that he brings up in his article, though, is that absolutely key is that if you're going to be part of controlling the violence, you have to be trained in mediation. We have to find ways of learning how to mediate problems and de-escalating problems. Now, one of the good friends of the program and a good friend of mine, as well as a student, is Bob Speed. And Bob and I were going uh, exchanging uh, some messages back and forth because I always respect Bob's opinion. And he's a, a black belt in Aikido. He's a black belt in several other arts. He's a wonderful martial artist and a fantastic man. Bob shared his thoughts and said as far as repercussions on a micro level, weakening the police sends a message to criminals in general that they are free to do as they choose. From a martial arts standpoint, much more responsibility will be placed on the martial artists to protect their families, the general public, and themselves. Bob also takes time during our messaging to point a couple of other important factors. First being that many times police training is not available or is very inadequate. And we can speak to that point in fact here. We know of a young police officer who's close to our Kung Fu family who's been on the force for about a year and was recently sent out to riot control without any training at all. But they had no choice. It was a every able body you get out there situation. If this good young man makes a mistake though, is he your next bad guy? Bob points out to something that I had not considered. Many times the training an officer receives is aligned more about protecting the jurisdiction from lawsuits as it is protecting the community and the officer, which that alludes to some of the things that the other professor was discussing about being set up for disorder rather than actual crime and violence. So with Bob's points, how much more important is training going to be now that many reductions to the number of the police force and the training they're going to get is going to be reduced and it's already happening? Well, here's the step-by-step -step that I got from putting together this podcast. If we want to organize uh, a community, you're the martial artist in that community, here's your step-by-step. -step. First, get involved in your community organization. 
take some sort of leadership role up in it. Uh, become that community quarterback. Start looking into available resources. For example, those who are already licensed to carry, those who have legal arms, those who have military training, those who have other types of martial arts training, those who have medical, first responder, or first aid training. Uh, you have got to organize some sort of mediation training. Get somebody in there who can train us to mediate situations and de-escalate and go through them. Don't read it in a book and not practice it. Go through the roles. Identify high-risk problems and the time to which they happen. Organize shifts and training for all those that want it. Okay, one more time, step-by-step -step highlights. Get involved in the community, that's one. Number two, start looking into the available resources. Number three, mediation training. Everything I read throughout this research suggests that that's got to be one of the number one things. Four, identify the high-risk problems. Five, organize yourself into shifts and patrols. And six, put yourself in training for those who want it or need it. Now, in the Balgia system, they always did it when time was light. So they didn't do it in the middle of the farming season. They did a little bit more toward after the harvest had been come in and time was kind of quiet anyway. Well, think about that. What does that mean for us? You don't want to necessarily do it during school, right? Maybe it's better during the summer when there's a break in between all the activities. Find times where things are down and not try to force it on top of already busy lives. Thank you so much for sticking with me throughout this whole program. I would love to hear from you, your thoughts about this program, whether you do it on Facebook or on Twitter, or just send me an email privately at kungfupodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to talking with you again real soon. This is T.W. Smith. I'm getting ready to practice with my students. Out.